everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. My name is Nick Jamel. I'm the creator of The Conversation of Our Generation and the host of the podcast here. And today, we're going to be talking about really something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, which is really how Jesus can come back, come out and say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what that really means and really dissect that saying, because I think it's an important thing for us to understand really what all that entails. And so I'd like to go through that, but this will also be the first of a few part series. I'm not sure how many will go, it'll take, but I do think it'll take at least three, maybe four episodes to really walk through this idea because I think it's very central to a lot of how we understand ethics and virtue in our world and where they're derived from and how Jesus came to express them most perfectly and what came from that. And so what we're going to try to walk through over these next few episodes is looking at how this saying is really a fulfillment of another part, which is, so Jesus comes as the way, the truth, and the life because God is the source of life and the source of truth that gives us the way, right? And so what we're going to talk about is how today, at least what we're going to talk about is how God is the one who gives us life and how we can know that. But before I get too far ahead of myself in explaining all of this, I want to remind you that you can find me at conversationforgeneration.com. You can go to uh, the podcast, like wherever you find your podcast on iTunes, just type in conversation for our generation and find me there. You can go to Twitter at con of our gen or you can go to facebook.com uh, slash conversation of our generation. And all those places are great places to talk to me, to share ideas, to ask questions, give your thoughts, propose ideas for podcast episodes, anything like that. <clears throat> I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to get the conversation going on these different topics that we're talking about today. And <clears throat> in case you haven't noticed, I do have a bit of a cold right now. It is that time of year. My wife is not feeling great either. So, um, I don't know. I think based on what our reactions are, we probably have two different bugs. So hopefully we don't swap those and get each other sicker than we already are. But the quote, the quote for the week this week is one that we're going to be diving into all day, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father, but by me. And obviously that's a quote from Jesus. And this is a hard thing to understand because how can he be the way to God? You know, truth itself, real life. And what what does that really mean to say that he is the way? Because I mentioned earlier, I think that this is a saying that's kind of mirroring God as the source of life, the creator. And through his creation, he conveys truth about himself uh that are expressed in the way that the universe is laid out, right? The logic behind the universe, the word, the logos, that logic, that inherent logic that the universe has because of the logic given to it gives us a roadmap for what to understanding God, you know, so you can induct, I need to think about this, hold on, is it, sorry, I had to double check, but it's, you can deduce things about God based on principles that we see around us, 
And by piecing them together, we can piece together parts of what God is and why the world is created in a certain way. And so by understanding God as the source of life and truth, a perfect example of all that is good, we can then derive a way of acting that is in accord with his nature by being made in his image and likeness. And we'll get more to these parts later, but because Jesus is the fulfillment of time, God incarnate, the perfect example of how to act, really. People around us, sorry, people around the world, uh, you know, struggle to find this way to live virtuously, to, to find a good ethic. And they look for that straight and narrow path that Jesus talks about. And Aristotle would call this, and Confucius would call this the mean. They could philosophically understand that there is a right way of acting. You know, they could deduce that from, you know, the fact that there is a sense that there's moral actions because this is a moral world created by a moral God and that there are right ways to do things. There's a logic to everything and you can find the logical next step if you're trying to act virtuously and that's where the mean comes in. You're hovering in between, you know, rashness and you know, fear or uh, cowardice, right? That's where you find courage is when you're not being rash, you're still being smart about your actions, but you're being, you're not being a coward. You're stepping out and taking calculated risks that are, you know, show bravery. <clears throat> and that's what the, that's where you find the mean. And I think, and or I believe, and I think I can demonstrate that Jesus showing us how to live led us to a full truth and leads to a fullness of life that comes from that way of being. But there has to be that source that he, well, he is God as well, but his incarnate, you know, his human nature, when he enters into time as an eternal being coming into time, that part of him has to have uh, some sort of ground, there has to be some sort of roadmap for being and for acting that he is the perfect example of. And so today we'll be, we'll begin that discussion with the life and its source, God, because I want to talk about some of the arguments in favor of a creator and why a creator must be God and why that's the case, right? It can't just be some random accident. And the first point that I would like to make is that the universe, it's impossible for the universe to have always existed. This was a, <clears throat> an idea that was floated around for a long time. Uh, a lot of the Greeks believed in some sort of primordial swamp or something that some sort of just almost like a hatching of the universe from a more primitive state, right? But it was always existing because <clears throat> They did have a good understanding that, you know, of matter in some ways that it would be impossible for any physical being, right, to create matter. And so without some sort of, you know, evidence like we have of the Big Bang, with which is um, tough to acquire in, you know, 5 to 200 BC or whatever, time period that this was being studied but around then and 
you know, they also didn't have the revelation that the Jews had. And so <clears throat> there's, there were ideas floated around for a long time, but I think that the argument that Thomas Aquinas made actually kind of quashed the philosophical possibility, the idea, because basically his argument was, if it were the case that every poss that the universe has always existed, that would mean that every possible thing would have had to happen, right? You'd have to have, at some point, a world with only Nick Jamel's, because in an infinite amount of time, anything that is logically possible would have to happen in some way. And so, <clears throat> what would also happen, though, is that because logically, one thing that is logically possible, right, it's hard to imagine, but it's logically possible, is that the world in the universe itself did not exist. And so you run into this conundrum where if the world always existed, then it would have had to at some point not exist. And that just doesn't make sense because that is one of the logical possibilities that would happen in an infinite amount of time. And so without getting into a discussion of the multiverse, <laughs> it's clear that <clears throat> the physical world <clears throat> pardon me, the physical universe that we're in today can't be eternal the way that we look at God or heaven or hell. It has to have some sort of limits on both ends. And that's even more true now when we look at the laws of physics. And, you know, I think Thomas Aquinas talked about this as well, that entropy is a reality. And so if you know, we could see that in just about everything on this world, on this planet. We could see that now with stars after billions of years, you know, disbanding or, you know, exploding or dwindling. You know, there's everything ages and begins to go out of existence in the form that it's in, right? It converts. And so there's also a sense that the universe is spreading out and that that spreading out is creating a problem as well that would show that it has to come from a single point and also that the spreading out is unsustainable for an infinite amount of time. There's at least some point in time where that's going to falter is the way I understand it. If you're a real physics person and I'm wrong about that, let me know. But that's how I understand it. <laughs> and and so, I mean, I took business in college, so let's give me a break if that's wrong. But I do think that that's what I've understood from like people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. And so you could argue that something created could be never ending in some way. I think that that's a hard case to make with the science, but it's not logically impossible to say that something that has a beginning has no end, right, in the physical world. There's, especially under the, where they were operating in the past, where they didn't have some of the understandings of physics that we have today, that's a very valid case to make. And I think, I could be wrong, but I think Thomas Aquinas leaves that as an open possibility. I could be wrong about that. I don't think he thinks that all of the physical existence will be never ending, but he does, well, I mean, he obviously does believe that with the soul, that the soul is created and is eternal. So... I think that there that is true for metaphysical realities. But 
I'm going a little bit off topic there, but the universe, the reason why it can't have always existed is that it, it isn't, it is also a physical reality. It's something that you can see everything within the universe is contingent on being created by something else. I'm here because of my parents and them because of their parents. Every tree is here because of a seed that came from a tree before it and so on. And so we can see that all of the living things, all of the, you know, even the physical wonders of our world have a cause in nature. And so that shows that they are contingent upon their, they are a contingent being. Uh, they don't need to exist. They don't need to have been caused to exist. If my parents, you know, my being is not necessary for the world to go on, right? My if my parents didn't have me, the world might be different. Their lives would be very different. You know, things would be different for a lot of people, but the world would go on, right? If if my parents had another child that they didn't have, things would be very different now, but without them being without that person being here, we don't know what that would be like, right? And so what we find then is because everything is contingent there has to be something that we hang it on. And also, there's three arguments that run very similarly, but I think the easiest one to understand is the cause. So there's the argument for the unmoved mover, the unactualized actualizer, and the uncaused cause. And I think the uncaused cause is the easiest one to understand. The other two, I think, are also very, very good. Um, I think the unactualized actualizer is probably the strongest one for me. But what comes with the uncaused cause is that the idea, I, if I was caused by somebody and they were caused by somebody else and so on and so forth, and, you know, every animal, every plant, everything on this earth was caused by something that came before it, well, there had to be something that came first. There can't just be an infinite regress of causes because, first of all, we've already talked about the fact that the universe is not infinite and that doesn't make sense. So there had to be some sort of beginning to the universe and everything that came after that. And so, and actually at the times that these arguments are being articulated, they did not have evidence of the Big Bang like we do now. <clears throat> and so, really, Thomas Aquinas was arguing in favor of the Big Bang before knowing that there was one. He was saying that in, I mean, 1200, I think, AD, that or maybe it was 12th century, so like 1100s AD, I can't remember off the top of my head, but around then, that he was making the argument that we have to have that first cause because you can't have this infinite regress. It's a it's an absurd idea to say that just everything was caused by the cause, by a cause, by a cause, by a cause, right? And so on and so forth. However, he says... There has to be something that is the cause of all causes. That doesn't need to be caused, right? There is something that's being is not contingent like our being is. Our being is contingent and unnecessary for other beings to exist. But there has to be one that simply is. That is a, a being that is lowercase b being itself it's it is just pure existence plain and simple and 
that's because we need to have one, a being that is able to cause everything and is simply exists, has always existed, exists eternally. And that's what we call God. I mean, and the other thing that you have to look at too is because God is a being with will. He's the one who moves the universe, right? He's the one who can will the universe to into motion. He can, he can move it with simply the act of his will. And then the idea of pure act of actuality, uh, the unactualized actualizer, he actually, there's another thing that I want to say on the unmoved mover is that you can see this as well very clearly that there has to be a first mover because think about how anything else is in motion. Now I can move my hands around and all that because I'm a being of will, but anything that's in motion, all of motion has to come from a motion before it has to have, has to be acted upon. And that's really another interesting idea that it, the universe is in motion because it's being acted upon by an agent with a will, a being with a will. <clears throat> and so that also takes us into actuality, which is that everything to be actual is to exist. Basically actuality is existence in essence. It's a philosophical term. And so to be actualized is to come into existence, not simply to be created the same way. There's a whole nother aspect to it that, you know, there's, I think actualization, you can almost say you're created with your essence. So I'm actualized when I'm created with my human nature to be Nick, the person that I am. And, you know, that to me, and it's almost acting upon principles of order within the universe, right? You're bringing into being something that's within the order of the rules that are laid out for existence. And so the unactualized actualizer is the one who is simply being itself. And so, and that being is infinitely powerful, omnipotent, and is able to do anything that is logically possible. And so that being is able to actualize other beings and bring them into existence with a, a nature and an essence and something about them that is reflective of the design that they were given in some way, that they were set out to be a unique creation, not just simply a chaotic creation, but one that was molded and crafted in the image and likeness of God in terms of us and in terms of the rest of creation, something that reflects something about its creator. And so there are a few things that we can know about God based on some of these ideas. So like I said, if God is the unmoved mover, pure actuality, and the uncaused cause, then he is the essence of, or sorry, he is at his essence being itself. He simply is, right? God just is. And if God just is, right, then he's also simple. He's not made up of parts because to be made up of parts would mean that there had to be in some way, something to put you together, there's possibility for you to fall apart, right? So if you are simply being an eternal, then you have to be simple and whole, you know, not made up of parts and whole, complete. 
And, and so that's how God is in this world. And so, or sorry, in his world. And because he's simple, he's made up of no parts. He needs nothing. He, he doesn't need anything from us. And this allows us now to understand in part why our creation is the way it is and why God revealed himself to us the way he did because we're able to be confident that his creation is out of love if he needs nothing. He doesn't need our love to be happy. He doesn't need to be entertained or assured of his power, which is what many cynical people say is, you know, how do you know God is good? Well, he could just be doing this all for a laugh up there in heaven, or he could be doing this to, because he's on a power trip. But our, this God, this necessary being that is being itself is not like the Greek gods or the Roman gods or any of those deities that really give us the word demon, not because they thought they were necessarily demonic, although some people in the church have thought that throughout the past, but because the word daimon, I, I forget exactly how it's pronounced in Greek, but it's basically where we get the word demon, is just a lower spirit. There were, the, to the Greeks, there were the gods, you know, the Zeus's and all that, and then there were these lower spirits that could walk the earth and do sorts of, all sorts of different things that were not deities, but they weren't human, or they may be human spirits that have gone on, something like that. And basically they said, no, no, these gods you're worshiping are not gods. They're just, de they're just these demons. They're just spirits that are maybe talking to you, most likely evil spirits, because they're pulling you away from the one true God. And so <clears throat> what, uh, what we find with them though, is that they do want to be assured of their power or entertained or they're annoyed with the people. And you hear this language sometimes in the old Testament to explain God, because I think that in large part, they wanted to make him understandable and relatable and to show that God has, you know, exhibited his wrath on us or these kinds of things make him personal, make him someone that you can relate to. And that's good to have that. But there has to be clarifications made when you dive into some of those passages. But we can know because he needs nothing, because he doesn't need to be loved, to be entertained, or anything like that. His creation is out of love. His creation is out of wanting to create something that can be just that can grow and prosper and spend eternal life with him. That's what he wants. And that's what <clears throat> his creation is for is he does want to be loved in the sense that he knows that it's good for us to love him and to try to be in communion with him. But he doesn't want to be loved because he needs it to be happy, right? That's, that's not what it is. Now the Bible will tell you those kinds of things, because it's trying to give that personification of God's will and, you know, make it more relatable and, and put it in human terms so we can understand it. But he doesn't need that. And so the creation that we have, our life, it is good. It is good because it is given to us by 
a being that needs nothing and therefore the only way this being could act is out of love and out of goodness. And so what we find then is if we start from that idea that all of what we have, all of existence is good in and of itself and that there is a God who is omnipotent, who is only acting out of goodness because he, as the necessary being, he needs nothing, right? As pure existence, he needs nothing. He's totally fulfilled. He has more fulfillment in his own existence than we could have in heaven, almost. And so, or maybe not even almost, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not a theologian, but I would imagine that God's own fulfillment is even more uh, amazing than what we can experience as human beings. And so... Through his omnipotence as well, he sustains life at all times, right? All of the existence, all of being is constantly being, is constantly sustained by God's power and his will. And so once we kind of understand that, now we can see that he is constantly active in the world by simply just by sustaining it. So you don't need a miracle to see that there is this being holding up the world because he's constantly doing that. Just if you look around you and you exist, then that's the case. And so I think what we need to look at is what that existence is like then, because if, if it's created by a God, a good God out of love and it is good itself just by existing, then there are other things that we can look at and understand about the world around us. And I think that <clears throat> one of the things is, is that if God is what we say he is, again, this necessary being, then all of his creation is, if it's good, then all the things that we see around us that are good are a reflection of his goodness. So truth and justice and mercy and love and all the things that we attribute to God, beauty and majesty, right? All of those things, then those are, are a reflection of his actual being. And so, because if it's something, if he's the ultimate good, if he's just goodness itself and he created something that is good, then that good is a reflection of the ultimate good. And this is kind of getting into what we're going to talk about next week a little bit, but I do want to make the point that the world around us is a reflection of God's nature in some way. And I talked about this again, I think at the beginning of the show that all of the beautiful things around us, all of you know us made in his image and likeness as moral actors in the world, all of this, everything has something about him that it reflects good or bad and not good or bad, but good if it's good. And then even if it has bad in it, that's just a deprivation of what God is, right? That's missing something that it should have, right? If you're an, if, if it's an evil thing or a bad thing, it's not positively evil. It's just negatively good. It's 
missing the good. And that's what makes it evil. It's deprived of the good. And so what I want to talk about next week is how we can know that there is truth based on what we've talked about today, that this God gave us truth as well. And so we'll be talking about that next week and a little bit more of the nature of truth and what we can deduce from that. But I do want to go ahead and sign off for the week and just say, if you're enjoying this episode, thank you. Please share it. And whether it's by sending it, the podcast to other people, sharing it on Facebook or Twitter, whatever it is going on the blog and sharing, you know, other things from the blog, you can go to conversationofourgeneration.com and find a lot of more, a lot more stuff there for you to check out. Go to Twitter at conofourgen, facebook.com slash conversationofourgeneration. All of those are great places to, uh, check out more about what I'm talking about and definitely stay tuned for the next couple weeks of this podcast if you want to see how this argument plays out because I'd really like to walk through this idea. It's something that I've been trying to work out in my head for a while and I'd like to talk it through and see what kind of comes of this. And so definitely keep listening, keep checking it out. And if you have ideas or thoughts, drop a line anywhere. I'd love to get a conversation going about this hear your thoughts, your arguments, and see what what we can work out here about really one of the, in my opinions, pivotal points in all of the universe, which is the life of Jesus and what that pivotal point meant and why it means what it means and where it comes from. And so thank you for listening to today's episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. Let's get the dialogue going. I'll talk to you next week.